What does Paul teach us about biblical eldership, about the type of leadership we should have in the church? Paul points us here both to the character and the convictions of the elder. The complete church needs elders of godly character and of biblical convictions. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. We're continuing a series we began just a few days ago from the book of Titus. It's called Transformed by Truth. And Jonathan, it sounds like today we're going to spend a little time talking about if you want to be in a leadership position in the church, well then these are the things that are critical for you. Yeah, absolutely. Paul spends some time here laying out the qualifications, the the absolutely necessary qualifications for church leaders. And that's important for someone who might aspire to church leadership, but I think it's important for all Christians to understand because we want to make sure that we are part of healthy churches and biblical churches. And there can be churches that are not set up according to biblical standards, and that often leads to catastrophe and, and, and pain. And so we want to know what, what the Bible sets out as a model for a healthy church, and Paul's going to teach us here. It's vitally important teaching material. Well, we're in Titus chapter 1, so grab a Bible and join us there as we begin this message, Leaders for a Complete Church. Here is Jonathan. Well, what makes a church complete? What is it that makes a true church, a biblical church, a fully formed church? That's quite an interesting question, I think. In our age of innovative church plants and online church, whatever exactly that means, and flexible models of church, these things popping up all over the place in an era where historic denominations, traditional church structures, and even recognizable church buildings are being swept aside, it perhaps makes the question more pertinent and more acute. If we can't recognize a church by its appearance or its associations, what constitutes an authentic and a complete church. Now, we could answer that question in a number of different ways. We could talk about doctrinal orthodoxy. We could talk about the preaching of the Word. We could talk about the ordinances. We could talk about fellowship, and we could talk about community. And all those things are important. All those things are essential for any authentic church. But here, in this passage, in the verses we've just read, the Apostle Paul points to a core element of church, to a foundational characteristic, to an essential feature, a feature that must be in place for a church to be a complete church, and that feature is godly leadership, a biblical eldership. Now, evidently, Paul had, had founded this church at Crete during one of his missionary journeys, and, and when he left there and moved on to the next place in his Mediterranean voyages, he left his ministry associate Titus there to continue the work of, of establishing the church and setting it on solid foundations. Notice what Paul says about his purpose in leaving Titus there. Verse, verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
Now, much had already been put in order on Crete. The gospel had been proclaimed. People had come to faith in Christ. There was this growing Christian community. There were different fellowships in different places, these different house churches in a number of different towns. Titus, he was there to teach and and to guide. But there was a lack. There was a need Each fellowship of believers in each different town, it needed elders. And until that was done, until that was established, the church was not actually in order. It was not properly set up. It was not complete. Now, it sounds like things were moving forward pretty well on Crete. It's an encouraging situation. Perhaps the the church was, was growing. And maybe it had all happened pretty quickly. It seems like it probably had. But Paul is concerned that the foundations need to be solid before the building rises too high off the ground. I don't know if you've ever seen a building that was put on shaky foundations. Perhaps you've seen the cracks. Perhaps you've noticed some leaning walls. Some may be familiar, I don't know, some may be familiar with the sorry tale of the Millennium Tower in San Francisco. It's quite a story. It was a luxury residential tower of 58 stories, cost over $300 million to build. A few years into occupancy, long cracks began to appear in the basement walls. It was discovered that the tower was sinking and beginning to lean. It's now sunk 18 inches, if you can imagine that, and it's leaning 14 inches to the side. Residents have suffered huge losses selling their units at far less than they paid for them. The builder is being sued, unsurprisingly, for vast sums of money, and remedial work on the foundation it's due to be completed over a number of years at the cost of about $100 million. It is costly to redo foundation work. It can be disastrous if shortcuts are taken there. And so Paul wants to be sure that this young church is being set on solid footings, that the essential elements are being put in place. And so he highlights here the importance of a godly eldership. And of course, as we begin to reflect on this emphasis, I think we see Paul's wisdom. A building built on shaky foundations, it's going to be trouble down the road, there'll be cracks, there will be cost, people are maybe going to get hurt. And even if a young church may grow and flourish and look impressive in some ways, if the foundations are not good, if the leadership is lacking or the leadership is deficient, eventually the damage is going to be visible. And I don't know, maybe you know something of what I'm talking about. Maybe you've lived through an experience like that. Maybe you've seen it from afar. The stories are all too common in the wider church. I think we can all see the importance of this stuff. And for us as a church, we, we want to take it seriously. Of course we do. Those of us in leadership, we need to run a, a good health check. That's part of the purpose in looking at these verses. We need to see that we are striving to be the kind of people God calls us as leaders, as elders, to be. Maybe you personally, maybe you're listening in and you're in the process of looking for a church, looking for the kind of place you'd like to join. Well, Paul's instructions here highlight the fact that you need to look for a church with a certain type of leadership. Maybe you need to worry a little bit less about the the building or the programs or the musical style or whatever, and you need to give more attention to the quality and the character of the leadership. Now, I've referred here to church leadership, 
But Paul is actually more specific, you'll notice in his language. He is talking about a particular office in the church to the office of elder. This is the main spiritual office of church leadership in the New Testament. Elders are set apart to shepherd the flock, to teach the word, to oversee the affairs of the church. So what does Paul teach us about biblical eldership, about the type of leadership we should have in the church? Well, Paul points us here both to the character and the convictions of the elder, and he tells us that both are very, very important. The complete church needs elders of godly character and of biblical convictions. Let's start with the first of those, godly character. When the world looks for leaders, when we look for leaders in, in most realms in the world out there, we look for gifts and we look for achievements, don't we? Someone is, I don't know, an impressive visionary, a great organizer, wonderful with money, good with people, a smooth talker, a slick dresser. She's, she's made money. He's built a great career. She's got a glittering resume, and on and on it goes. That's how the world thinks. Those are the kind of things we tend to look for. When organizations draw up job descriptions and person descriptions for roles, normally those documents are filled with requirements of education and experience, expectations of skills and of gifts, and generally speaking, the world doesn't pay too much attention to character when looking for leaders. Obviously, if a scandal breaks, and we see enough of those in public leadership, if a scandal breaks, then suddenly character is important, and it comes into focus, and everyone's looking at character. But in finding leaders, in setting out the requirements of leaders, character is rarely in view in the first instance. It's interesting, isn't it? In biblical terms, there is no office of greater importance in the world today than the office of elder. It is, I think, the highest calling there is. And it's very interesting that precious little focus in the discussion here is given to gifts and achievements. You notice that? Skills, abilities within the biblical mandate. There's not a whole lot on that. There is one vital skill that's mentioned, and we're going to come to that. But the overwhelming focus is given to character. Twice, Paul insists that the elder must be above reproach. We see it there in verse 6. We see it again in verse 7. Now, slanderers will come and attack Christian leaders with malicious intent. That's hard to avoid. That's just the tough reality. But no one should be able to come with reason and with justice and in truth and tear apart the character of the elder. There must not be enough material to work with there. He must be above reproach. Now, when Paul speaks about being above reproach, he doesn't mean sinlessly perfect, of course. No one would qualify for office on that basis. But it does mean that the elder cannot be brought into disrepute over his character. He cannot be in a position where he will bring the church into disrepute. He needs to be the kind of person where ultimately the mud isn't going to stick to him too well, because with all his flaws and sinfulness, and we all have those, he is at the end of the day a person of integrity, a true believer, someone who's walking with the Lord and seeking to honor him. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and the first part of a message called Leaders for a Complete Church. It's part of our series, Transformed by Truth, as we're studying the book of Titus. And hope you'll stay with us. We'll get back to the message in just a moment. But we're able to bring you Encounter the Truth because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called How Church Can Change Your Life. You can find out more about this or go ahead and give your gift online by coming to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. 
And I hope you'll stay with us. We'll talk about this a little bit later in the broadcast as well. But if you ever miss the program, if you maybe have to leave early or you joined us late, you can always come to the website and you can listen online. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. There you can stream the program or download the MP3 for free. Again, our website address, EncounterTheTruth.org. All right, let's get back to the message. Here is Jonathan. This language of being above reproach is used elsewhere in the New Testament, actually, of all believers. It speaks of being truly saved and being kept by God. It's the same language used in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, where Paul writes prayerfully and with hope to the believers there at Colossae. And he says this, Colossians 1, 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the ultimate hope of the believer, that that's what Jesus is going to do as he keeps us in faith and walking with him. And so Paul's point here in Titus is that elders are going to live as true believers, as truly saved people, live with integrity as Christians, with their testimony kept intact, with no one able to question their faith. And this needs to be true now in some specific, some key areas of life, the first of which is family life. Notice that with me in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Part of the way in which the elder needs to be above reproach is in the matter of family life, of marriage, and of faithfulness. He needs to be the husband of one wife. Now, that assumes, by the way, that the elder will be a man. That's not a point here that is developed in Titus. It's just assumed in this passage. It's an issue that Paul gets into more fully, I think, in 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3, but it's, it's not developed here. It's kind of assumed. But what's in focus here is that the elder needs to be a one-wife kind of a man. I don't think it's saying that he absolutely has to be married. After all, the Apostle Paul was single, as was the Lord Jesus but the point is that if he is married, he is faithful to his one wife, not divorced and remarried, not on his fourth marriage, but he's devoted to his one wife, the wife of his covenant, to the marriage vows that he has made, and he's faithful. Added to that, his children are believers. Now, the word here translated believers literally means faithful, and it could mean that they are, they are faithful children you know, faithfully honoring their parents and their leadership in the, in the home, or it could mean that they hold to their parents' faith. Well, it's a, it's a little bit hard to discern maybe, but it's perhaps worth looking at the negative flip side that's put there. They are to be faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. They are living faithfully and honorably, obediently within their parents' households. Presumably, this means taking their parents' lead, their father's lead in spiritual things. And so being faithful will probably mean being obedient and responsive to the teaching of the Word of God within the home. If children in the home reject the faith, even in their youth, just won't have anything to do with it, it is perhaps a sign that this man at least needs to focus on spiritual shepherding at home. He needs to invest there and not take on a wider role of shepherding in the church. The word here used for children really points to kids in the home, not, not so much adult children. So in a sense, only time will tell if these kids are truly converted to Christ. 
But as children within the home, they're faithful to their parents' instruction, including spiritual instruction, and that's important. It's important because the elder has a role of shepherding, of spiritual leadership within the wider household of God within the church. And if things are, you know, just chaos at home, it's not a good sign of the father's leadership. In verse 7, Paul speaks of the elder as God's steward. And the image here, if you can kind of picture it, the image here is of a wealthy landowner, an estate owner, hiring a steward who would take care of his household, manage his affairs on his behalf. The the elder manages the household of faith on behalf of our, our heavenly master. And if a man has no handle on things within his own home, how can he be the steward of the household of God? Now, any pastor or elder reads all this with a little bit of trepidation, I think probably some discomfort, because none of us, none of us is the perfect father, the perfect husband. That's the honest truth. Ask our spouses or kids if you want to know, or actually maybe on second thoughts, don't ask. Be a little awkward. (laughs) But we all know our limitations. We all know our failings. But at the same time, we recognize that Paul is shrewd in insisting upon this. You know, faithfulness in marriage matters. And if that core component of life is compromised, well, the the high office of eldership, it won't be appropriate. We all have our struggles in parenting. Let's be honest about that. But if things are chaos at home, if it's rebellion, if it's rejection of the faith, At very least, at very least, we must say that the father, the husband, he needs to be kept from taking on added responsibility so he can focus. Added to that, it may be a sign that the spiritual leadership at home just isn't what it should be. The elder needs to be above reproach in family life. And then more generally, he needs to be above reproach in his character and behavior, verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This idea that we've just spoken about of being a steward of God's household, that idea in itself tells us why the standard is set so high. Think again of this idea of the owner of a great estate, large house, beautiful house filled with precious belongings. There's land, there's staff, all the rest. This owner needs to find someone very, very special to take charge of the estate when he's away, perhaps for some very long periods of time, business overseas. It's not a job that just anyone could do. The steward has got to be totally trustworthy. The owner needs to have complete confidence in him. Now think about the household of God, the church of God. Consider the value of that estate, of that household, the cost of it. It wasn't a matter, was it, of the owner writing a big check or taking on a huge mortgage to to gain ownership of this estate? That wasn't the cost. No, what was the cost of this household? God sent his son, his only son, to die for the church, to rescue us, to redeem us, to shed his own blood for us, to make us his very own. And now the father entrusts this household to these stewards, to these elders, and he understandably sets a very, very high standard for them. Now, this is a challenging list of characteristics we find here in verses 7 and 8. And for us who serve as elders, it is hard, but I think healthy, to examine it. We look at it and we see areas where we need to grow, areas where we perhaps need to change, areas maybe where we need to repent. 
At the same time, Paul insists that it is a requirement for the role that an elder could not be justly reproached for a clear character failure in one of these areas. We're all flawed, we're all sinful, all works in progress, of course we are, but the elder's life must not be characterized by a pattern of ungodliness in one of these areas for which he's open then to reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Spiritual leadership is servant leadership. It's collaborative leadership where elders learn from one another and from other saints in the church family. And an elder that is convinced that he is right and everyone else is wrong, it's my way or the highway, who is convinced that he has the inside track on theology or methodology, who is arrogant, such a leader is a liability, of course, in the church. Being arrogant, it often goes with being quick-tempered, dealing with people who disagree or who, who won't get, get on board or who are slow to learn. It's frustrating to such a person, and there's a powerful reaction. There's emotional and relational and perhaps spiritual damage to those in the fallout zone, and it just won't do for the elder. No, the elder needs to be in control of his passion, steady, reliable, ready to respond to emergencies. And so actually then, being in slavery to, to alcohol, being a drunkard, that's not going to be a fit. We can see why Paul writes that there. It's a quick way, isn't it, to ruin the reputation of a church, to damage the ministry, to let down the saints. No, that can't be. He can't be violent. Perhaps that doesn't require a whole lot of explanation, but boy, is it important. And he can't be greedy for gain. You know, ministry probably isn't the wisest career choice for someone who's aiming to get rich. It's probably not the strategic or the clever move. But there are dangers of the elder using his position to misappropriate money from a ministry. It's happened before. We've heard the stories. To manipulate people, to extract money from them, to monetize ministry in some way for personal enrichment. And if someone is greedy to get rich, the dangers are obvious. It won't do. Now, those are a whole lot of negatives, and we do well to pay heed to them. But now come the positive characteristics. Want, rather than wanting to kind of hoard riches for himself, the elder must be willing to open up his home to share what he has. He must be hospitable. And if someone just has a closed door and everything they have is just for them, no one has ever shared a meal with them or spent time with them or, or, or been to their home, if it's a closed door, you know, that's a little warning sign. Something may be out of balance there. An elder, an elder will be characterized by hospitality. He must be a lover of good, says Paul. That is, have a heart that is warmed by good things, not sort of titillated by evil, entertained by unseemly things, amused by unwholesome things. Now, he li likes to talk about the good gifts of God and the joys of serving Him and of knowing Him. An elder will have a heart so shaped by the Spirit of God that he delights in the things of God and the work of God and the people of God. Be self-controlled, says Paul. He'll have some control over his tongue, not be careless in what he says, in the confidences that he divulges, in the words he chooses, not giving full vent all the time to his emotions or opinions. Be self-controlled in the use of his time, in work and rest and sleep and the balance there. Be self-controlled in his approach to food and pleasure, not given to excessive indulgence, not out of control. No, he will be marked by evidence of a growing Christ-like character of the Spirit's work. He will be upright, holy, and disciplined. And when he stumbles, and he will, we elders and pastors do, none of us can claim perfection in these things. Anyone who would claim perfection is not to be trusted. 
When he fails, he will have a spirit of repentance and a hunger to be the person God calls him to be. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth and our message, Leaders for a Complete Church. Now, this is not the complete message. We do have to pause right here, but we'll continue it next time and hope you'll make it a point to tune in. And whether you listen online, on the radio, or through our brand new app, it's all made possible because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book that Jonathan recommends. It's written by Josh Moody, and the book is called How Church Can Change Your Life. In this book, Josh tackles 10 common questions about the church, like is it only for Christians? And do you really need to go to church if you're already a Christian? What's the purpose of the church, and why are there so many different ones, and why is preaching important? Why do they do that in church? Well, this book addresses that and many more common questions, and we'd love to send you a copy as you give a gift of any amount this month. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-998-7884. That's 1-833-99-TRUTH. Or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today. For Jonathan and for our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller, and I hope you'll join us next time.